0: Today's scripture comes from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 8 to 18. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Lord of our God endures forever.
1: Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Gene, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And welcome again to our Sunday afternoon worship service. We are currently in a sermon series on the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, when I was a baby, uh, my family, we lived uh, in Elmer's Queens, and our next-door neighbors, uh, they were an older couple whose kids had grown up. They owned a store in Queens, and my parents became close with them. We'd have dinner together often, and they would watch me from time to time while my parents were busy with their store here in Manhattan. And my parents always talk about uh, how much they loved me, especially the husband. I called him, Chogi Haraboji which is Korean for over there grandpa because he lived over there. And they would shower me with gifts, all the latest toys and the most expensive sneakers and clothes. And even when we moved to Jersey, we would still meet up with them. But eventually, my parents kind of lost touch with them. And when I was in middle school, They reached out to us again, but this time under some really horrific circumstances. Uh, Over there, grandpa had made the tragic decision one night to drive home after drinking. And uh, there was a car accident, and the person in the other car was killed. So he would be spending the rest of his life in prison. Well, thankfully, in prison, he came to faith. And uh, what a faith it was. For the next few years, he would write me letters from jail, a man I barely knew, I barely remembered. And uh, I couldn't really appreciate it at that age. My mom would, would make me write back to him in my sloppy Korean, and it was, it was kind of a chore for me. But thinking back to those letters, he really just poured out his heart to me in them. His words were filled with joy at his newfound faith. He would ask me about my faith. He would ask me if I knew who Jesus was, if I had a relationship with Jesus. But there were also words of regret. And he was brutally honest with his past He would share with me how he felt he was not a good father to his children. He would share with me how he was not a faithful husband to his wife. But again and again, the question that he would ask me was, what kind of man do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? When you're old like me, what will your legacy be? And I've thought about him a lot these past few weeks as we've started this sermon series on 2 Timothy because Paul is writing to his beloved Timothy. No, no biological relationship, but like a son to him. And Paul is writing from prison. And he knows that he won't be getting out. This will be the end for him. And in this final letter that he writes before his execution, there is profound joy in the gospel, but also honest regret and pain. There's this sense of urgency for Paul as he addresses Timothy for the last time. And the question he keeps coming back to for Timothy is, Timothy, what kind of man do you want to be? What kind of life do you want to live? What kind of ministry do you want to have? When it's all said and done, what will your legacy be? And this isn't just a letter to Timothy. It was circulated. It was read to all the churches. So as we go through the sermon series, <clears throat> we can be challenged by these same questions. And in our passage today, we see a surprising aspect of Paul's ministry that has brought Paul a lot of pain. He says in verse 15, You are aware that all who are in Asia... Turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Paul says that everyone in Asia turned away from him. Now, as a church in Manhattan, we were scrambling when everybody left the city during the pandemic. We estimate that 20 to 25% of our church left. That was really bad. But Paul says here that he lost an entire continent Now, obviously, he's being hyperbolic. Timothy is in Asia. He's pastoring at Ephesus, which is the capital city of Asia Minor. They didn't all leave. But Luke tells us in Acts 19 that there was a great revival in Asia Minor. The gospel spread. Many people joined the churches that were planted. But what we see in this passage, in these verses, is that Just a short time after that, there was a mass exodus of the same people leaving the churches, leaving the faith. I think this is a good reminder for me and our staff here that church attendance, church numbers, is never a proof of faithful ministry. Think about it. The church that the Apostle Paul planted had a wholesale sellout of people. And none of the churches that he planted are around today. But that doesn't mean he did it wrong. But it's also true that we are witnessing a similar phenomenon today, particularly in the churches in the West, and especially among young millennials and Gen Zers. Many, many people are leaving the faith. Sometimes it's high-profile Christians, mega-church pastors, Christian musicians and authors. They've all deconverted in very public ways, but it's not just celebrities. How many youth group students who've grown up in the church, they go off to college and they stop going to church? How many college students are very active in their campus fellowships and churches while they're undergrads, but then they fall away from church when they graduate. How many people in our city stop going to church because their careers or their families are too demanding? This is not a new phenomenon, but it does seem somewhat heightened in our current cultural moment. It's trendy these days on social media for people to deconstruct their faith. And perhaps you're here today and you're feeling some of this tension. Maybe you're asking yourself, should I stay in the faith or should I leave? I want to address this issue today. And I want to do it by answering three questions. First, why are people leaving? Second, how can I guard myself from leaving? And third, most importantly, why should I stay? Why should I stay? Well, first, why are people leaving? Now, we don't know from these verses specifically why the people in Asia Minor left the faith. But we do know something about the first century Roman Empire. We know that Christianity wasn't an established and familiar worldview throughout the Roman Empire during this time. It was novel. It was new. So, it most likely aroused the curiosity of a lot of people. It was the new thing to try. It was exciting. But its message was also very foreign, very strange to the average first century person living in Asia Minor. And then you add to that sustained persecution that broke out against Christians. Because remember, they were marginalized, they were misunderstood. These are the realities of the first-century world. Our world today is a bit different. Here in the 21st century in New York City, we're not exposed to anywhere near the degree of persecution that first-century Christians endured. People in the West, people in the United States, they're not leaving the faith because they're risking their lives by being Christian. And in our society, Christianity is not new, it's not novel, it's not exciting. Christianity has, gone, has emerged from the margins into established institutions. And one big consequence of this that we're seeing now, and it's really unfortunate, it's shameful, it's, it's, it's horrible, is all these stories coming to light of church corruption— Spiritual abuse, trauma, burnout. There's an increasing distrust of institutions, of established institutions. And a lot of that, to be honest, is justified. I get it. People are leaving the faith today because they can't trust the church. Many have been hurt by the church or by other Christians. They're appalled by the ways in which the church has enabled and covered up abuse and corruption. That certainly is true. But it's also not true of everybody. I personally know a ton of people who have stopped attending church, not because they don't trust the church anymore, not because they've been hurt by the church, but simply because church has become too inconvenient or they they just have more immediate priorities. Brett McCracken, he's a writer for the Gospel Coalition, and he writes about people leaving the faith, and he observes five structural flaws in in the ways that many people approach faith that make them prone to or ultimately lead them to turn away from the church. And I thought this was interesting. I wanted to share it with you. Take a look at this list. The first one, the consumeristic faith. The person with consumeristic faith, that person's central question is this, what does it do for me? This person shops for the perfect church like she shops for the perfect outfit. Faith, it always boils down to this cost-benefit analysis. The next one, pragmatic faith. It begins with good intentions. How can we most effectively reach people and evangelize effectively? But it often morphs into doing whatever's necessary to fill the pews. Give people what they want. So churches start trying to stay relevant and look cool. Don't upset people. The next one, political faith. Boy, are we seeing this today. Political faith happens when political affiliations merge with faith. And when this happens, it's always faith that is shaped by and made to serve politics, never the other way around. And you know, political idolatry, it can happen whether you're conservative, moderate, liberal, progressive. And this is prevalent today. Emotionalistic faith, This is centered on experiencing God. Now, don't get me wrong. Emotions are good. Experiencing God is good. I definitely endorse that, believe that. But if your faith is centered on an emotional experience of God, then that becomes a very shaky foundation. It becomes a subjective evaluation of faith. If I feel connected to God spiritually, then I'm healthy. If I don't feel it, that I'm not healthy. But on the other side of that, you can have a faith that's too cerebral. What that means is it's all head and no heart. You can have an intellectual faith that's disconnected entirely from the way you live. This is a faith that it, it, it's all information and no transformation. You know the right answers, but you don't live rightly. And McCracken says that he's observed one or more of these structural flaws in many of the people who have left the church. Because when your faith is consumeristic, guess what? You have no pain tolerance. When the cost becomes too high, your faith doesn't survive. A faith that's too pragmatic, it's going to have a hard time confronting, standing up to, offending people when need be. Remember that Jesus said, the world hated me, guess what? It's going to hate you too. A faith that's too pragmatic, it will have a hard time doing that. It's going to try to smooth out the edges of Christianity and end up picking the path of least resistance. Political faith will be the opposite. It will be too rigid. It will align faith with party platforms and not allow for any deviation of that. An emotionalistic faith, It becomes dependent on the trappings, the right retreats, the right conferences, the right music, the right lights. And it's ultimately self-referential rather than looking to the person and the work objectively of Jesus Christ. And finally, a cerebral faith, it's a disconnected one. There's no link between belief and behavior. You assert the right doctrines, but they don't really change or inform the way you live. This will inevitably lead to compromise. Now, I can keep going. I can go on and on about why people leave the faith. I'm sure you can think of more reasons why people leave the church. But it's really important that we look at this next question. How do I guard myself from leaving? And Paul gives us the answer in verse 13. He says this, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, unlike the types of faith we just looked at, true faith, according to Paul, is found in Christ Jesus through the pattern of sound words we received from Paul and the apostles. Timothy is to follow sound words. And what Paul means is the inspired, the authoritative words of God, which were given to Paul and the apostles. What he means is this: The Bible is the sound words, the pattern of teaching the gospel, the message. So what is the pattern that Timothy's to follow? It's the message of the gospel. And Paul unpacks this in verse eight through 10. Therefore, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, I'm not going to go into these verses because Pastor Aaron covered a lot of them last week. Uh, But I do want to say that Paul does three things in these verses. He points us backwards before the ages began. He points to what's being manifested now and then forward to what's coming. So Paul goes past, present, and future. Future. I think we have to remember this because we forget it a lot. The gospel is not just what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. And very often we think that. The gospel is something that Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Absolutely. But more accurately, the gospel is what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do. And what we see in these verses is this the gospel must be central central it must be our meta narrative a meta narrative it is a truth that stands above all truths it stands over and above every ideology philosophy and virtue it's the overarching story that gives context that gives purpose that gives meaning to every aspect of life it's the big picture So let me illustrate this. We announced a few weeks ago, very exciting news, we're getting our own space. We're we're, we're signing a really long lease and and hopefully we'll be moving soon. But our new space, it it first needs to be built out for us. We have an amazing in-house architect who designed the space, but there's a lot of work to be done. Plumbing, drywall, electrical work, painting, and more. all of these separate contractors they are working together towards the same thing using the blueprint this is what a meta narrative does the gospel is the big picture the blueprint it gives context and meaning to everything we do and paul pleads with timothy follow the blueprint Follow the pattern. But he also tells Timothy this guard it. Guard this deposit. Look at verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What Paul's saying is this message is so important that it must be guarded, it cannot be diluted, it cannot be distorted. Once contractors, they go off blueprint, you end up with major structural and aesthetic flaws. You can't do it, especially this blueprint. And this is the answer ultimately to why you should not leave the faith, why you should stay. Because the blueprint, the gospel, is too good. It's too good. Because it proclaims. That what Jesus offers you, it's always going to be far greater than what he demands from you. He demands your all, but guess what? He offers you his all. This is the gospel. Jesus giving his all, his life, his death to save us. And the reason why Paul pleads with Timothy to guard the deposit, it's because this message will change everything for us, not just on day one when you become a Christian, but every day for all of eternity. And I love that Paul emphasizes in verse 9 that it's not because of our works. It's not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. This is so important for us to remember. This will keep us going. Uh, Before I got married, I spent three years in downtown LA bartending full time. And I loved it, but it was also really challenging. I had a lot of regular customers, regulars, who I got to know really well, and some were a lot tougher than others to serve. For example, I had one guy, he came in all the time, I'm just going to call him Aaron, didn't have any money because he was in ministry, so I would be giving him free food and drinks. And yet, there were so many complaints. This apple martini is not, ju- not quite right. The food is, where is it? Can we get the Spurs game on this channel? My service was never good enough. I was never good enough. And if all my customers were like that, I would have left that job the first week. But thankfully, I had a lot of great regulars as well. One of them was a guy named Jimmy. And I liked him so much, I called him Mr. Jimmy. He was a great tipper. And, and I, I get asked all the time, hey, when you bartended, what was your favorite drink to make? And I always answer, beer. Because it's, it's easy. I just pop it open and serve it. Mr. Jimmy, all he drank was Budweiser's. I would have them sitting in ice, waiting for him to come through the door every day. And he never complained. He was so easy to serve. And, and more than that, he became like an uncle to me. He'd always ask about my life. He'd ask about my family, my relationship. Uh, and he kept trying to hire me to come work for his company. He'd let me use his apartment complex's tennis courts, so Aaron and I would go and play there. And I didn't just like him because he tipped well. I really grew to appreciate his character and friendship. I love my job because of people like Mr. Jimmy. It was a pleasure serving them. I wanted to please them in any way that I could. This is why Paul emphasizes to Timothy and in his epistles again and again that it's not about you or your works. You know, if God is a God who just condemns your sin and is always disappointed because you keep messing up your life. You can't get your act together. If, if your service for him is just never good enough, that just sucks all the joy out of your life. It's such a burden. The Christian life ends up being all duty, no delight. All work, no grace. All disappointment, no joyous love. But if I understand that God is the patron at the bar who says to me, you know what? I just bought the bar and I'm buying you drinks. Sit down, I'm getting behind the bar. Try this McKellen 55. Oh, how about this $10 million tip on top of that? I got it. You don't have to work to earn my favor. This is a God. God that I will absolutely delight to serve and follow. Timothy, guard this. Guard this deposit. Don't ever lose it. Don't ever get it distorted. This is too important. This is too good. But wait, there's more. Paul says in verse 12, Which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. What we see in this verse is that it's not just Paul who has to guard, it's not just Timothy that has to guard, but God is also the one guarding. And what is God guarding? It says here that God is able to guard that which has been entrusted to Paul. But if you study the Greek, another way you can interpret this verse is God is able to guard what I've entrusted to him. Paul has given God everything, and God is able to guard that. And even though we're not saved by our works, God does honor our works. In other words, nothing we give to God is ever wasted. It's guarded by him. Nothing we give to him, even our weak, stumbling faith, nothing we give to him is in vain. Uh, This past year, right before the market tanked, I opened up college saving plans for the boys. And I... To this day, I'm scared to look at the account balances because not much of what I've invested into those funds has been guarded. But Paul says again and again in his writings, like in Romans when he says, my present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul is saying that every investment we make to God will be compounded and compounded and compounded and compounded to all infinity. When we give to God our careers, our money, our obedience, our singleness, our freedom, our purity, our reputations, He will guard it and He will reward us in spades. And you know what? It's not just suffer now and get rewarded later. Have a hard time on earth and in heaven you'll be rewarded. Yes, that's true, but that's not all of it. In Mark 10, Jesus says this, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundred times more now, at this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come, but many who are first will be last and last first. It's not just eternal life later, it's a hundredfold now. But notice that Jesus includes in this list persecutions. And this is his way of letting us know that this is not a prosperity gospel. It's not if you give Jesus one dollar, he's going to give you hundred dollars guaranteed. It's not that. But what Jesus is saying is this. The home we have in Jesus, the family that we have in Jesus. The possessions we have in Jesus will be incomparably more valuable than what we have now, than anything we can imagine now. We get this now. And then eternal life in heaven. This will make us stay in the faith. Why should we stay in the faith? Because of what Christ has done because of what Christ is doing, because of what Christ will do. And this leads us not only to serve and follow God, but also to serve our neighbors. No one in this room will ever be an apostle like Paul. Very few people in this room will ever be a pastor like Timothy. But every single person here can absolutely be an Anesiphorus. Look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Paul named two people in the verse before this, Phagellus and Hermogenes, and their legacy, all we know about them is that they left Paul and they left the faith. But Onesiphorus, he's not only someone who stayed, he's someone who blessed Paul immensely. And you can just tell by the way Paul talks about him just how touched he is by Onesiphorus. And interestingly, the name Onesiphorus, it literally means refresher. It's the perfect name because that's exactly what he does for Paul. He searched for Paul earnestly to help and bless him. You know, too often in the church, we aspire to be Pauls or we try to be Timothys at the very least. Too often in this world, we sacrifice everything at the altar of wealth, power, intellect, reputation, beauty. But I'm going to tell you, I've met many really wealthy people in my life. Very wealthy people. I've met very brilliant people. I've met very funny people. I've met very beautiful people. But the people who have had the most profound impact on me, the ones who have left the deepest impressions, who have made their mark, the ones who stay in my head and in my heart, they're the ones who have shown me and my family rare and extraordinary kindness kindness. If you want to make a good impression, if you want to have the greatest impact on those you meet, sure, you can try to have the most impressive resume. You can try to have the sharpest wit, the funniest jokes, the coolest style, the most stunning beauty, but that will fade that will be forgotten. It's kindness that will have the greatest influence. It's kindness that will stay with people and burrow deep into their hearts and make them never forget you. Onesiphorus is someone who searched earnestly for Paul so that he could serve Paul. And this is something that we can all do right now, this week. Who can we earnestly search for in our lives who might need our kindness today? So I want to ask you again, what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of legacy do you want to leave in this world? Paul shows us two paths here. One leads away from a loving and gracious God. The other leads to refreshing the world and inheriting God's mercy. Which will you choose? You know, in, in John chapter 6, the word gets out that Jesus is healing people. So they all come, thousands of them. They gather to, to see Jesus, to be healed by Jesus, to be part of this movement. And they all come and Jesus not only heals them, he feeds them. He feeds them miraculously to the point where they're all stuffed. They can't eat another bite. There's all this le- these leftovers. And at this point, they're ready to crown Jesus. This is awesome. But then Jesus keeps talking. And he keeps talking. And he keeps talking. And people start scratching their heads. People become confused and even offended. And then one by one, they all leave. And after this happens, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he asks them this question, Do you want to leave too? And Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come. We believe that you are the Holy One of God. May this also be our answer and our legacy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, of what he's done, of what he's doing, of what he will do. I pray that that would indeed be our blueprint, that that would change the way we live, that that would be central to us. May we guard it. May we treasure it. May we live
0: it. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.